could be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that your word is truth, inspired by your spirit. It is your very word to us. And Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us that would, by your spirit, that would cause us to respond to your word the way that sheep respond to the voice of their good shepherd, especially a shepherd who's already died for them. So Lord, I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. All right. Galatians 5, and we're going to begin at read, uh, reading at verse 1. We'll read 1 to 6. Galatians 5, verse 1 to 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Thus far, God's word. Now, here we have a warning that we didn't think we would need, not us uh, North Americans especially, right? We love freedom. Why is Paul warning us not to become slaves? We didn't need to know that. We are not slaves. We are free. But one of the major themes that you find in Scripture One of Paul's favorite themes is that humanity loves slavery. Now, of course, we can understand how humanity would love to enslave other people. But Paul is saying more than that. He's saying, no, no, we love slavery itself for ourselves. On the one hand, uh, you can have hedonism. Hedonism is people pursuing as much pleasure, becoming slaves of pleasure. My goal, my purpose is to serve the God of pleasure live for myself, and get as much pleasure as I can out of this life. Those people very clearly are slaves. If you've pursued this route for a time or even part-time, you know that this is quite, quite a bit of slavery. You end up doing things you never thought you would want to do. You are acting in a way that you would rather not want. You don't want to want those things, and, and yet you feel enslaved to them. But there's another form of slavery, and that would be religious slavery. Religious slavery, where you realize that there is a God or gods. You might think there's gods or spirits, or maybe it's dead ancestors or whatever it is. But you realize that there is a, uh, a, a mark that you have to reach in order to be a good person, to be rewarded. And you become a slave to the law in that sense. Whatever your law is that you think is the good law, you are a slave to that doing things in order to get a reward from the higher power or whoever you think has the ability to reward you. And so you have on either side slavery, hedonism, living for pleasure, living as if you are your own God and controlled by things that you would probably prefer not to, things that would end up destroying you. 
On the other hand, you have legalism or religion where you are pursuing good works for the purpose of getting a reward. Very much like a hired hand or a slave, I do these things so that I will not be destroyed. And Paul is saying that the gospel is to remove both of those kinds of slavery. Both of those kinds of slavery. It is for freedom, he says, that Christ set us free. Now, we have to go back a little bit into Galatians to understand why why is Paul even saying this? Why is Paul even saying this? Well, he says that God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, actually, but his name was changed to Abraham. And God made glorious, wonderful, eternal, beautiful promises to Abraham. And to Abraham's seed. Remember, it was that singular offspring, that singular heir. Great, wonderful, wonderful promises. And Abraham would always be waiting for that heir to come for whom all those promises were really meant to be fulfilled in. And Paul says that heir was the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was more than just a singular heir because that man, that heir, the Lord Jesus, that son of Abraham wouldn't inherit by himself. In a sense, he is the singular heir. He's the only one who can rightly claim the promises of God that he made to Abraham. But he's not going to inherit by himself. He's going to inherit with a multitude of people. Who? Those who trust in the promises of God that he made to Abraham. Abraham's the first of those that we see to inherit those promises with his great heir. We see those because he trusted in the promise of God. And then for a period of time, the household of God was marked with extra rules to sort of set them apart from the nations. Extra rules, things that went beyond what was good and bad. You know, what kind of clothes to wear, what kind of food to wear, what, where you're going to live, where you're going to worship, all these sorts of rules that, that God made for them. And Paul said that this was very similar to slavery. Not that they were slaves, but for a period of time when heirs are too young to inherit, when the mature heir hasn't arrived yet, they are treated in a sense like slaves. And he says like little kids don't get to make a lot of choices for themselves. And sometimes the choices that mom and dad make them aren't simply a matter of right and wrong. It's just you are an an immature child. I'm going to make choices for you. And he says for a time, slaves and future heirs look alike. They look very similar, right? They can't make a lot of choices for themselves. We said that what what a two-year-old girl and a firefighter on the job have in common is they both don't get to pick their own clothes. But one is an heir and one is not. And Paul said the shame is that in his day and also and throughout Israel's history is a lot of those people in that household preferred to relate to God as slaves, as hired workers, trying to get things from God by doing things. I did these things you owe me. Not treating God as a father, perhaps even treating him like an enemy, but an enemy who you happen to be a slave of. I did these things so you owe me. And so when the heir came, when the Lord Jesus came, he took away all those extra rules that marked them as people waiting for the inheritance, 
as waiting for the heir because now he's come. And now you have a problem because some of the, those people prefer to hold on to those things. They prefer to relate to God based on works rather than based on the promises that he made to Christ, the mature heir. All that as a bit of an introduction, Paul's introduction in the previous chapters to this passage. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In that household of God before Christ came, there were many children, many heirs, people who did trust in God's promises. They were children of God by faith in the promises, the gospel promises to Abraham. And they trusted in them, waiting for that great heir to come. And there were also people who were not. They were more like Ishmael, who were born according to the flesh, sons of Abraham, in his household for a time, but really not heirs. And Paul says, do not think that slavery is better. Do not think that relating to God based on something about you is better than relating to him based on his grace and on faith. That now takes us to our first point as a way of an introduction. And and our first point is this. Resting in Christ will take courage and diligence. Resting in Christ will take courage and diligence. We'll see that in the first four verses. Read that again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Thus far, God's word. These are very strong words, very strong words. You see the euphemism there. He's talking about circumcision. Then he talks about people being severed from Christ. It's a word picture. Very strong words. I think first we're supposed to to notice the stakes. What's at stake? Why is this so important? What would be lost? And what could be gained? If you get this wrong, what would be lost? If you get this right, what is there to gain? What is the stakes? Now, I think we need to realize that this is not simply having a different perspective on Jesus. Not a different type of Christianity, but of having Christ or not having Christ. You're either trusting in something about your own personal connection to God, or your own personal connection to God's people, whether that be to the church, or Christian family, or or Christian heritage, or Jewish heritage. You're either trusting in your own connection to God, and God's people, or you're trusting in Christ's connection to God, or God's people. You're either calling on God to consider whether you're a proper descendant of Abraham or whether Christ is a proper descendant of Abraham. Either you're trusting in Christ's obedience to the law or you're trusting in your own obedience to the law. You're either trusting that Jesus got what you deserved on the cross or you're trusting that you're going to get something good from God based on what you deserve from him. Paul here is saying you have to pick your savior your debt payer, your law obeyer, your claimer to the inheritance of Abraham. 
when the will is read and the, and the inheritance is, be, is, is going to be distributed, who are you going to send to the lawyer as the inheritor? You're going to go or are you going to send Christ? You have to pick. It's either you or it's Christ. You can't bet on two horses here. Now, these false teachers are telling non-Jewish Christians to get circumcised, the males. And this will enhance your sonship with God. This will give you an even better place in the household of God. You will be in on Christ's claim as a son of Abraham and also your claim as being a son of Abraham. And these false teachers, they they weren't just targeting non-Jewish Christians. They were also targeting Jewish Christians too. They're trying to get the Jewish Christians to think that their Jewishness, their circumcision or food law obedience counted in God's eyes. It counted when God was figuring out who to treat as his children and who to give inheritance to. These false teachers were telling these Jewish people they could count on God to treat them as heirs for two reasons. They could count on God to treat them as heirs based on their Jewishness and Christ's work. Their connection to Abraham and Christ's connection to Abraham. But you have to pick, says Jesus, or says, and Jesus, says Paul, you are either a slave counting on God to reward you about something about your flesh. Think about Ishmael your obedience, who your family is, or you're an heir by promise, by faith, by trusting in what Christ did and being united to him as being part of the body of the one singular heir. Now, dear brothers and sisters, when we speak of loving the word of God, of loving theology, of being committed to be careful about what we teach, what we believe about God, You need to realize this is not simply about being people who get it right. This is not simply another good work that we we did the thing. We we did the thing. We we had good theology, and we were more obedient to God. No. No, that's not why theology matters. The stakes are much more serious than that. Not merely a matter of being wrong or right, although, yes, it is a matter of being wrong or right, But in reality, every heresy, every false teaching is either a direct attack on grace or if you follow its implications, it will attack the gospel of grace. Grace is what's at stake. Paul says, you have fallen away from grace if you embrace these slaveries. If you think about something you have done or has been done to you, if you think of these things as why God would give you good things, grace. Grace means to receive from God good in spite of the fact that you deserve bad. That's what grace is. Grace is that Jesus received from God what you deserve and you receive from God what Jesus deserves. Grace What you owed God, Jesus paid for you. Grace. Salvation is received by trusting in Jesus. This is what is at stake. It's at stake when 
Liberal churches seem like they're being more gracious, but really preaches salvation by being good and, and being an accepting person. You're saved if you are a more loving and accepting person. It's still a works-based salvation that they're preaching, though they do it by saying they're more gracious. But it's also at stake when conservative churches add more rules. And they demand you think this way or that way about a pandemic. It's it's what's at stake when charismatic churches teach you that you need to be hearing God in your thoughts to know exactly what you're supposed to do. More instructions. To stake in our church. It's at stake when churches teach you that your salvation in Christ can be lost if you prove to be unworthy or if you're not remembering and, and, and confessing every one of your sins and you're not forgiven. See, this is not merely about more or less theology points. You're not earning your salvation by paying more careful attention to Paul's theology. What is going on here? It is treasuring the gospel of grace. Or sliding into ideas that ultimately try to take away from Christ's gospel or add to it. Second, I think, so we're supposed to meant to, we're meant to notice the stakes. We're also meant to notice that it will take courage and diligence. It's going to take courage and diligence. This is going to take backbone. Stand firm, therefore, Paul says. It's going to take a spine of steel. This is, this resting in Christ is going to take diligent work. Now that seems to be opposite, right? Resting and work. Resting in Christ is going to take hard work. Working to make sure you don't lose your rest. Now we need to be aware from the pressure from outside the church. From inside the church and inside our own hearts. To add something to our claim from something about God. Rather than trusting in Christ's accomplishments, in Christ's credentials, and in his genealogy. People calling themselves Christians will come up with new ideas. And they may be very likable people. They may be our family members. They may be lifelong church members and friends. And to graciously reject their ideas and warn them and others about these rest-robbing ideas, that's likely going to cause some people to call you names or make accusations about you. A person trying to protect their family or church from false teaching can expect to be ridiculed or worse. But it is the attack from the inside that is the most difficult. The one from within your own heart. The one from within your own heart is the threat that is worse than all of these. Our own hearts are weak and sinful and deceitful. We get tired of the gospel. We take our eyes off of it. We get tired and discontented with simply being a child of God, trusting in Christ. And we're drawn to new ideas and teachings like squirrels are drawn to shiny things. We're so prone not to be satisfied with the sweetness of the gospel of grace. Resting in Christ, if we're not careful, can to our sinful hearts become boring. We're, we're prone to look for more things, more slavery-type things, whether it's new insider information about God that was hidden 
or perhaps getting tired of repenting and simply trusting in Christ's blood when we fall into sin and we just long to be able to do something concrete that we can just get that guilt off and I don't want to feel guilty anymore if I can just do something so that I know that I'm forgiven. I did this thing so I know I'm forgiven for that sin. See, the way we take courage is to take rest seriously. This is what God has designed the Lord's Day for. The weekly gathering to delight in the gospel as a family, as the adopted children of the household of God, to enjoy and rest in the finished work of Christ, to set our eyes and affection and attention on what he has done. There's so much temptation to to take these gatherings and instead focus on what we can do, how we can improve our lives. But we need to take rest seriously. John Piper has a similar term, which is, I think, very helpful. He calls it serious joy. Oh, it's joy. And it's rest, but it's serious. Our focus needs to be unashamedly, unswervingly, on the finished work of Christ, praying together about that, singing together about that, getting elders and pastors in the pulpit who will preach that again and again and again and again, eating and drinking from the Lord's Supper to confess that again and again and again and again until he comes because he will come. And those who are found resting in his finished work alone will be received into his kingdom around his family table with an inheritance, a sonship with God based solely on Christ's credentials, only on his credentials, and not in any way on our own credentials. It's a gospel that needs to be defended, not because the gospel is weak. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's not why it needs to be defended, but because those who are hoping in it, myself and yourself included, are weak, prone to wander, This is why the church was given shepherds who are called to watch out for the sheep and watch out for wolves, especially those wearing sheep clothing, saying, trust in Christ and these things. The stakes are high and the sheep are way too precious to Christ for us to take this casually. Paul certainly isn't taking this casually here. The gospel is too precious to treat carelessly. We need to treat it as the all-surpassing treasure That it is. Brings us to our second point. God's spirit births an eager and sure hope. God's spirit births an eager and sure hope. Let's read this in verse five. For through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Let's stop there. So we are heirs of God. United to Christ, the singular heir, right? One heir. And we're united to him. So we're co-heirs with him. We're part of the heir's body, and we are united to him, inheritance by faith. Paul has said that a million times. He's going to say that a million times more, by faith. Faith which the Holy Spirit gives to us. The Holy Spirit is given to all who belong to Jesus, and he works faith in us. We believe in a trinity. God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to all who belong to Christ. And he works faith in us. He works future faith in us as well. That's what hope is. Future faith. Faith is trusting in God's words 
and his actions. Trusting in God's words and his actions. That's what faith is. Trusting that he has done certain things. Trusting that he will do certain things. Things he has promised. Faith isn't just blind. It's based, it's wise and it's based on evidence. Imagine that I have seen all the gold bars and piles and piles of money that my friend has. Imagine I have a, a filthy rich friend. Tons and tons, like Scrooge McDuck opened the vault. I see tons and tons of his money. Okay? Now, every single time my friend, this friend has told me he's going to do something for me, 100% of the time, he has always done it. A thousand times he's done it. Every single time. And I've seen the vault I know he's good for it. Now, this friend has promised he's going to pay. He, he, sorry, he has paid for my groceries. And there's a dozen people there who said, I saw him do it. I saw him go and pay for your groceries. So we know his character. He's always kept his promise. We know his ability. We've seen his Scrooge McDuck vault. And we've got evidence of people who've seen him do it. But I still have to trust him. I have to trust that he's done it because I didn't see him do it. But man, that's not blind faith. You might even say it's stupid for me not to trust him. It's foolish. It's based on evidence. And that's the kind of faith that we are to have in Christ. Now there's past faith, which is trusting what Christ has done. But there's also future faith, which is hope. Trusting in what Christ has promised to do. Now in this case, (laughs) Paul is talking about the return of Christ. Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. To give to those who are not in him by faith, to give them what they deserve for their sin. And to give those who belong to him, to give them what he deserves. Because he already received what they deserve on the cross. And he's promised to bring us to a new heaven and earth. Our eternal rest, if our faith is in Christ, is not away from this earth, but back on this earth once the Lord has made it new. Just like he won't replace our bodies, but raise them from the dead and then make them new. He's going to make all things new. A new heaven and earth. And the two, heaven and earth, will be combined. The dwelling place with God will be, of God will be with men. See, so the Eden that Adam and Eve enjoyed will extend to every single corner of the earth. And we will dwell in this heaven on earth with God eternally. We will enjoy what Christ deserves for as long as he deserves it. Now, Paul sometimes calls this, and the Bible calls this sometimes, the hope of glory. A glorious hope. The glory of God on perfect display. Far from being shameful, it is the opposite of shameful. It is a glorious display, a glorious hope. But Paul here, did you notice what he calls it? The hope of righteousness. Why would he do that? Why would he call our eternal hope? Why would he call that the hope of righteousness? One of the best ways to describe that new heaven and earth is righteous, perfectly in line with God's character. No sin, no disobedience, no acting or thinking or even feeling like an enemy of God would. 
only righteous desires, only righteous words, only righteous actions, only righteous thoughts, perfectly obeying everything that God has commanded and it coming perfectly naturally to you. It will be the thing you most passionately want to do. Not merely the thing you know you have to do or you ought to do, but what you delight to do. Imagine all of those things lining up perfectly. What you ought to do, what you want to do are the exact same thing. I've heard it said that true freedom is doing exactly what you want and not regretting it in a thousand years. This is the freedom of serving God. Yes, serving him, but serving him as sons and daughters, as co-heirs with Christ. This is why our eternal hope is called the hope of righteousness. And this is a hope that the Holy Spirit births within the believer. In previous weeks, we've seen that you can't be an heir of Abraham, a true heir, a real heir, without supernatural birth, born by the Spirit of God. And this is a hope that the Holy Spirit births within the believer, within those who belong to Christ by faith, a longing for heaven. Now, longing for it because it's a place of perfect righteousness, it is good. And the Bible encourages us to long for heaven because it will be a place where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no more sickness, no more uncertainty, no more disease, no natural disasters, no New England patriots. This is good and it is biblical. And it's the kind of thing that a son or daughter of God would long for and look forward to about heaven. But the hope of an adopted child of God also includes longing for the hope of righteousness. That the eternal new earth and heaven will be a place where God's name is not dishonored, but where he is honored and worshiped and delighted in. And not only to long for it to be a place where people will no longer sin against you, yes, look forward to that, but also a place where you will no longer sin and where you will no longer struggle with sin and you will no longer even want to sin or be able to, but to simply delight in the law of God, loving what he loves and eagerly doing it with joy. Friends, Satan and his demons could possibly long for a world where they wouldn't suffer but they would not long for, they would not hope in a world where God is perfectly honored and where everything they do will be in perfect obedience and love for God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit within you, brothers and sisters. A longing for and a hoping in the hope of righteousness. This is the work of the Spirit in you. I think we're also supposed to see that this is a sure hope. It's a sure hope. It's not the kind of thing we might say that when we use the word hope in our culture, when we say hope, it just means I want something to happen and I want it a lot. I hope I get an A. I hope the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl. You hope you get married. 
You hope you get that new job. We all hope that the pandemic will come to a screeching stop with Omicron. We use the word hope to speak about things that we strongly want to happen, but might not happen. That's not how the Bible uses that word. It is anticipating and looking forward to things that will certainly happen. See, a Christian can hope in the hope of righteousness because it's not based on what we do. If it was, then it would be that kind of a Chiefs winning the Super Bowl kind of a hope. It's not even based on what God would do in us. It is based on what Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago. When God called him his, own, his beloved son with whom he was well pleased. When the earth split and it shook and the sky went dark. When Christ was on the cross. When he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. These things happened and they secured a sure hope. They made them certain and true. And not just we really hope they'll happen. They will certainly happen. It is a sure hope. Christ paid for them with his blood. And God the Father will not turn that payment down. And for a Christian, somebody trusting in Jesus, it's a sure hope. And it is worked in our heart by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see how sweet, how intimate the work of the Holy Spirit is in us. It's not like false religions trying to hear and decipher messages from the spirits or the gods or the universe or ancestors. It's not just trying to get thoughts. It's much more intimate than that. Not sending us messages, but working godly desires in us. Not giving codes, codes and messages with images in our minds to tell us what to do. No, he's conforming our desires shaping our heart to long for what God longs for, to delight what God delights in, to love what he loves, to trust the promises of his word, to trust the accomplishments of Christ, and to eagerly hope for what Christ has paid for will come to pass. It is a much more miraculous work than getting messages and ideas. It is conforming our hearts to be like the heart of God's only son. Hearts that eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That brings us to our last point. We are added to Christ by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We're added to Christ alone, by faith alone, by saving, by, <laughs> let's say that again. We are added to Christ by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Let's see this in the last verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Thus far, God's word. Now, hold on, Paul. You're now saying that works count. Are you saying that works count? <laughs> now, we have to put this in context. Paul said many times that it is by faith alone that you are added to Christ. And now, somebody might say, oh, no, no, it's okay, because he said we're saved by faith plus love, not works. But here's the problem. Love is works. The Ten Commandments is summarized by two commandments, right? Which ones? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So if we say we're saved by faith plus love, then we're basically saying we're saved by faith plus works or faith plus law. And Paul is saying we are saved by grace alone, and that is received 
by faith alone. But since faith comes by the Holy Spirit, since faith comes by the Holy Spirit, then so too does with the Holy Spirit come a hope and a longing for righteousness, a heart that loves God. Paul insists on this. Salvation is not merely forgiveness from sin. It definitely is forgiveness from sin. But it's also freedom from sin. A rescue from sin's punishment and a rescue from sin's enslavement. Now let's say as, as, as a teenage boy, you went off and joined against your parents' Uh, against your parents' commands, you went and joined a pirate crew. Now you're disobeying your parents. You joined a pirate crew. It's a bad thing to do. You're disobeying your parents. You're on a pirate ship. So you're going to get a punishment for being on that pirate ship. But here's the problem. You're stuck on that pirate ship. They're not going to let you go. So you're a slave to that ship, and you're also guilty for being on there. Salvation would not merely be mom and dad saying, okay, we're not going to punish you for being on that pirate ship. Salvation would be getting you off of that pirate ship and also forgiving you for being on that pirate ship. Real salvation, the salvation that Christ gives, is not merely, salva- is not merely forgiveness from sin. It is freedom from it. It is rescue from it. And what we find to be our hope will have the power to enslave us. If sex is your hope for joy and fulfillment, You will sin to get it, and you will be its slave. The same is true with money. If money is your hope, you will become a slave to it. So it is with the attention of people, or clicks, or likes, or attention on social media. So it is with family. So it is with safety, or health, or even rest. If it is your hope, you will become its slave. And since salvation and faith are brought, both of them, by the Holy Spirit, they come together with love for God and neighbor. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't just whisper commands into our minds. He gives us a heart that longs for these things. A heart that longs to hear the word of God and the promises of God and and delights to trust and follow the word. A heart which longs for righteousness in the next life, but also in this life. Life. And so, brothers and sisters, we must run from slavery. We must stand firm against the slavery of hedonism, of getting our hopes, our hearts set on things that will enslave us, things that are not God. But also, we have to run from the slavery of self righteousness, of trying to earn our our answers from God, to point to something about ourselves, to count on something, to say, no, I'm I'm from a Christian family, or I'm from a Jewish family, or I go to church, or something about us that would say, God is my father, and I can expect blessings from him. We have to run from both of those things. And dear church, the solution to both of those kinds of slavery is to remember that Christ has set us free. And remember the hope that he has given us. And so when it feels like you are enslaved to sin, remember the hope, the hope of glory, 
And remember the hope of glory is also the hope of righteousness. Take time and meditate on that hope of a world where only righteousness exists, where you will only and always do and only want to do those things which are righteous. And then preach to yourself and say, I am an heir by Christ and I long for righteousness away with this sin. I am an heir of righteousness and I long for it in the next life, but also now. And I've been set free. Christ has set me free. And dear Christian, if you are worried that Christ will not answer, God will not answer your prayers because you have not proven yourself to be a good enough son or daughter, oh, that is the worst kind of slavery too. And you remind yourself that he has set you free from that kind of slavery as well. You are not a servant in the house. You are an heir. And God doesn't answer your prayers because you've been a good enough son or daughter. But Christ has been the perfect son and that is credited to you. Dear Christians, let us stand firm against the yokes, all kinds of yokes of slavery and rest in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word, even the difficult passages in your word, and this is one of those. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to stand firm, to not waver from the hope of righteousness that Christ has purchased for us and secured. Lord, I pray that we would no longer be like slaves, like the people of the gods of the nations trying to convince their God to care about them by doing things for him. And that we would no longer be slaves like the hedonists, slaves to our own passions and selfish, carnal desires. But instead that we would be like sons and daughters, happily obeying you. Not to save ourselves, but to delight in the fact that we have been saved by Christ. And Lord, as you keep us resting in that, hoping for that, until the day your son returns. I pray this in Jesus' name.